0: All right, King's Church, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. It's so good to be back with you guys. I missed you two weeks uh, in my lonely little room um, experiencing the COVID. And uh, so it was, I'll talk more about this later, but I'm just so glad to be out of that room. Goodness gracious. Like, uh, and nobody in my family got it. It wasn't that bad for me. Uh, so praise the Lord for that. Thank you all for praying for me. And um, And several people called me, sent me, Text messages and notes, really, really appreciate that. It was good. It was, uh, it was a good time. Um, so appreciate FaceTime. I appreciate phone calls. I was able to talk to actually several of you guys, but it's just so good to be in your presence, and uh, I love it. So we're turning to the Book of the Philippians right now. This is really, the Book of Philippians is a fascinating letter. I really have never taken a nosedive into Philippians before to look at it, but it's a fascinating letter in several aspects. I will mention one now, specifically because it's been written from prison. And it's a letter full of joy. It's a letter. The theme of the letter is joy and rejoicing. And the fact that Paul writes it from prison is just is fascinating um, to me. And specifically how this passage plays uh, into a kind of why we started King's Church and what we're hoping the Lord will do in King's Church is this is a letter where Paul passionately writes to these people constantly, it's actually in the in the wording that we're going to use this morning in uh, verse four of or chapter chapter four rather verse one. Just how much he loves them, he just loves these people, and he's just telling them, "I love you, I can't wait to see you, I'm so proud of you." And in and in verse one of chapter four, he says, "You're my crown and my joy," and he's talking to a church. And here's why that's so interesting to me is because so many people in our day, and I seriously, I know many of your stories. And I meet people every day that have lots of what I call church hurt, okay? And, and they are skeptical about the church for very good reasons. We could talk a lot about that, but we all know the reasons. We've experienced some of, some of the reasons. And what we are praying for us and what we're hoping for and what we continue to strive for at King's Church, and it's what you are inviting other people into, is to be like this church, a family together on mission and um, that's part of the reason. So let's live together in Christ and in, in, in with each other. However, that being said, the Philippian church was not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. There is no such thing, just like there's no family. Right? We all have problems in our family, but we still, some of the most treasured times are these memories of Thanksgiving and different things like that. But families have problems. Philippian church had problems problems, two types of problems specifically in this passage. The first one uh, we talked about several weeks ago was there was a group of people that had a certain amount of scruples from the Old Testament, from the Jewish way of living, uh, that Christ fulfilled, but they were still holding on to them, okay? They were essentially teaching that salvation is Jesus plus, okay? Jesus, you have to embrace Jesus through faith, which is the totality of, of what the new covenant in Jesus is, but you, got, you have to do these other things, and different people had different scruples. And so Paul writes to them saying, no, it's, your salvation is, is through faith alone, through the grace of God. And I, listen, I was the guy. I had the pedigree. I had the Jewish pedigree. And it's worth nothing to me. It's worth rubbish. Okay? Now, he's talking to a second set of people. He's warning this church. He warned them already. Watch out. There's these false teachers. If you're a false teacher, stop it. Now there's this second group of people that he's warning against. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And this second group of people claimed to be Christian, but they lived their lives completely contrary to the Ten Commandments, which is what we call the moral law, or how we should live. Okay, Lived completely contrary to that. Uh, one of the popular teachings of the time was that you can be very spiritual, and what you do with your body doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you, who, who you sleep with. It doesn't matter what you eat. It's just the only thing that matters is your spirit, okay? And, and that may have been the teaching that Paul was talking against, but this is, what he's, this is what he's warning against, okay? He's warning against this type of lifestyle in this passage, okay? Where you claim the name of Christ, but you have complete disregard for what he calls sin, okay. What I don't want you to miss, and then we'll jump right into the passage. What I don't want you to miss is the church has problems, but please don't miss in this church or any church, uh, and in this specific passage, the beauty of the church. One verse, and then we'll jump right in. Um. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 says that God placed all things under him, Christ, under his feet and appointed him to be head over all things for everything which is the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Just remember, as messed up as we are and as the church is and as this church is, it is the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ, his most prized possession. Amen? Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. If you need it, it's printed for you in your order of worship. This is God's Word. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. For as often as I have told you before, and now say again, even in tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And their destiny is destruction, and their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame, and their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my crown and my joy, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. The grass withers and the flower fades. but The Word of our God will stand forever. God, as we consider this passage, we have a simple prayer. We want You. I pray that You would remove me out of the way and let the power of Your Word speak. And help me, God, to bring a message uh, that is from you. And let the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we worship you over the word. Now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The question that I have for you something I've been thinking about in my personal life, and it's providentially God's got me teaching in this specific passage. But the question I have for you is, how do you live in the moment? How do you live in the moment? For some of you, that question perks your interest. For others of you, it frustrates you because you're tired of thinking about it, right? How do we live the tension in our lives of being right here, right now? There's a lot of challenges in our world being right here, right now, okay? That one, there's, there's the, what we carry around with us. The smartphones, there's always these distractions, right? But there always have been distractions. How do you live... In the moment. It's actually more complicated as I started thinking about it in this passage. The reason I bring it up is because there's a group of people that they just indulge themselves all the time. Whatever they feel, whatever they want, whatever they do, they do it. And Paul's actually warning them against that. And he says to follow my example. Follow the example that I've given you. What does it mean, though, to live in the moment? How do you live in such a way that... You, you don't screw up your future, right? I mean, don't we always try to put those two things at opposite ends of the spectrum? Like, well, I know I feel this way, maybe you do, that if I always live in the moment, then my future might not be what I want it to be. But if I always live in the future, I'm going to miss everything that's happening in my life right now. How do we walk out this tension? We've, we've experienced, you have, and you know people that live on both sides of that coin, of living in the moment. The problem with only living in the moment is what happens when it's a bad moment. What do you do with that? What happens whenever the the tragedy comes in and the health problem or the illness or or, or, or somebody, the relational strife between that person that you love? What about if it's a bad moment? Live there. That's tough. What about uh, whenever the consequences of impulsive decisions of, quote, living in the moment cause a lot of regret. I went into this little YouTube, uh, not YouTube, it was an internet dive this week of, of bad tattoos, right? Because I was thinking about living in the moment, right? And, and uh, some of them had misspellings. The funniest one to me was the, several years ago there was this dance song called Gangnam Style, right? My kids love to do it. And someone tattooed that on their arm. That lasted for about three weeks, right? That was a living in the moment regret, right? Living in the moment regret. But we've we've seen that, right? Maybe some of the, one of the best examples is, you know, people who get married in Vegas or whatever, right? So if you got married in Vegas, sorry, description fits you, you know? Um, But they're, we, they're living in the moment has problems, but there's also the other extreme of only living for the future. That has problems, too, of the person who's consumed with their their future and there's several problems with that just really quickly so we can get into the passage number one is what if your dreams that you're thinking about and hoping about don't pan out ever they just don't work out what are you gonna do then or what if what if you actually get what you want and then find out it's not what you were looking for in the first place There's some problems with that, too. And if we're always focusing on the future, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's um, demons working with each other. I found the quote. It's too long. I won't read it this morning. But one of the strategies of these demons to trick Christians or to trick people was make sure they always think about the future. Make sure they never notice what's happening right in front of them, okay? There's a problem with there. The reality, there's a tension here. We have to think about the future, But if we only think about the future, we miss the moment. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we live in the moment? How do we live in the right balance of denying the impulses of right now and planning for the future at the same time and still being present? The argument, big idea for the moment is, uh, big idea for the sermon is this, is that only in Jesus Christ, and I'll explain why, but only in Jesus Christ can you Process your past, glory in your future, and live in the moment. Okay? Only in Jesus Christ, again, and I'll explain why, can you process your past, glory in the future, and live in the moment. Okay? The title of my sermon this morning is The Theology of Now. The Theology of Now. It's what I feel like Paul is talking about. Three points. Number one... The theology of now, that's what we're going to talk about that for a minute. Number two, how not to live in the moment. What does Paul specifically say in this passage about these people that he's, he's warning this church against? How not to live in the moment and how to live in the moment. The theology of now, how not to live in the now, and then how to, to live in the now. And here's my goal. My goal for you and my goal for me is for us to think and understand and have the, the ambition of truly being able to be present. That's what I want for you, and that's what I want for me. But what I think Paul teaches us in this passage, what I think the reality of it is, it's more complicated than we thought it was. But that's what I want for you. Let's live today, and let's still expect glory in the future. Okay? All right. So, the theology of now. All right, first point. The theology of now, defining the present or the now or this moment, as I started thinking about this, is both challenging. And simple at the same time. It, the first part of the definition is simple, right? The, uh, now is just this moment in time, specifically. Maybe it's this millisecond, but in general, we tend to describe it this day, maybe this week, maybe the, next, maybe the f- next few months, kind of this general moment, right? You can't really go past a month, right? But you can define now as narrowly as like, bam, or this week. Something like that. But right, we all kind of operate with that general understanding. But what I found challenging is that the challenging part of living in the moment, this is what our goal is, right? The challenging part of living in the moment is that we can't live isolated from what has happened and what we want to happen. We can't live this moment isolated from those two things that you and are a culmination of what has happened to you or what you have done plus what you want to happen, okay? And you're now, even though it's right now, it's made up of all those things. Living in the moment means dealing with what's happened, and living in the moment also means having a little bit of a thought to what you want to happen, and then experiencing what is actually happening. It's more complicated than I thought. Living in the moment. Living a lifestyle, being able to capture what God is doing processing your past and being able to live for the glory of the future what you want to be your future affects your right now for example if you want to buy a house you got to make plans now if you want to sp- if you want to find someone to be with a spouse you got to make plans now it, and what you want affects your now and what has been done affects your now In other words, in order to live in the moment without without regret, you have to account for the reality of the past and what you want in the future. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. He makes the point that you are a citizen of heaven right now because of what's happened in the past in Christ. And that something will happen in the future. that He's going to come back. He's going to transform your body into, his, into this resurrection body. And because of what's going to happen, and because of what has happened, you are a citizen and you should live like this. See? The theology of now. Okay? That's what he's talking about. Last thing I'll say here before we move on to the how is because, remember, our goal, our goal is to live in the moment that God has given us right now, to live in the present, to live your life with gusto, you, like, like, like the Apostle Paul, it's hard to argue there's a man that got more out of life than the Apostle Paul or Jesus Christ or, or other heroes of the faith. They seem to be able to strike this tension. I love this quote, maybe you've heard it before. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. There's an aspect of that that should be true of us as Christian believers. We have a hope that no one else has. We should be able to live with a gusto that no one else has. I think that part of the reason the coronavirus is affecting so many people in our world emotionally is because they don't have the real hope to come. And they're having to live in the fear because of that, and I think that we have the tools in Christ to be able to live with gusto, coronavirus or not, but in particular, Last thing I'll say here is this is why you need God to live in the now. Is because God is omnipresent everywhere at all time. In other words, to say He's outside of the bounds of space and time. Theologians call this God's transcendence, in God's eminence, okay? The transcendence of God is that God is above everything. He's sovereignly controlled. In Psalm 47, 1, Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with, shout, with sounds of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Transcendence. He's over everything. He's, it's almost he's so over it that he's kind of separated from it and, control, and can control it. But then there's the opposite side of the coin, okay, of God's eminence where God is not bound by space and time, and God is everywhere at every moment. I'll say that again. God is everywhere at every moment. Psalm thirty-nine, 139, verse 7, uh, the psalmist cries out, where, can I, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol... That you are there. In fact, the whole story of Jonah is about the fact that he can't outrun God. God is everywhere and at all times simultaneously. So let me ask you a question. Who's going to teach you how to live in the present? The only one who can teach us how to live in the present is for one who can be at all times and all spaces at the same time because he is a sovereign being of the creator of the universe, God himself. If you're going to live in the moment... In fact, what does his name mean? Yahweh, I am. So we might need to figure that out. So how do you live in the moment? Again, the big idea this morning, only in Christ Jesus can you process your past, glory in your future, and live in the moment. Point number two, how not to live in the moment. Look at this passage with me. This is what he says here about this, these people uh, in the church that he's warning this church that he loves not to be like. He calls them, and he says, I've told you often of this before, so it's not the first time he's broaching the subject. And I tell you now, even again in tears, isn't that fascinating it is to me? The Apostle Paul is this mature man of God. is not stoic. He has deep passions and love for people. Okay, And he says, Even through tears, many live as enemies of the cross. They're described here. Folks, um, who, sh- who, who will claim the name of Christ but have complete disregard for His word and His law and what He calls sin and not. He calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. Is it an interesting description? Enemies of the cross of Christ. But if you think about it, what was the cross for if it wasn't for your sin? And if you completely disregard your sin, then you were an enemy of the very thing that God came to do to deliver you from it, right? Enemies of the cross. Paul talks about this same, it's a different, this is a tactic of the devil that he uses frequently, okay? So it wasn't just a problem in the Philippian church, it was a problem in the Roman church. Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That was the whole point of the cross. Is so you don't have to have your sin anymore.